Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I try in vain to be persuaded that the pole is the seat of frost and desolation. It ever presents itself to my imagination as the region of beauty and delight. Mary Shelley. It was the summer of 1914, and Ernest Shackleton was launching his third expedition to the vast, majestic continent of Antarctica. The South Pole had been reached four years previously by a Norwegian explorer, Roel Amundsen. It was nearing the end of the heroic age of Antarctic exploration. The First World War swept across the globe. Shackleton felt there was one more great expedition to be made, a transcontinental crossing of Antarctica from one side to the other. In his diary, he wrote, The first crossing of the Antarctic continent from sea to sea via the Pole, apart from its historic value, will be a journey of great scientific importance. The distance will be roughly 1,800 miles, and the first half of this, from the Weddell Sea to the Pole, will be over unknown ground. Every step will be an advance in geographical science. It will be learned whether the Great Victoria chain of mountains, which has been traced from the Ross Sea to the Pole, extends across the continent and thus links up, except for the ocean break, with the Andes of South America, and whether the Great Plateau around the Pole dips gradually towards the Weddell Sea. With a crew of 28 men, one cat and more than 60 dogs on endurance, a course was set for the coast of Antarctica and the starting point for the Trans-Antarctic Expedition. But soon, the explorers found themselves navigating a sharp jigsaw of icebergs and floes. The Weddell Sea is notorious for dangerous pack ice that can stretch for a million square miles. The whalers of South Georgia the last stop before the Antarctic had warned Shackleton of the perils of the Weddell Sea. But he was restless, determined, running from debt, and he pressed onward. The discoveries Shackleton enthused about in his diary would never be made, because on the night of the 18th of January 1915, ice closed in around the ship. They were stuck. The depths of the Weddell Sea would eventually become Endurance's final resting place, and the ice, home to the shelterless crew, for a staggering six months. Without a ship, without communication to the outside world, 
and with only limited supplies, Shackleton's expedition would no longer be a mission for glory, but a fight for survival that would test the very limits of human endurance. As you're listening to this, the History Hit team and I are making our way down to the Weddell Sea, to the place where we believe the endurance lies on the seafloor. We're joining the incredible expedition run by the Falklands Maritime Heritage Trust. If we find it, it'll be the greatest underwater discovery since the Titanic. So get ready, because I'm taking you with me. Dan Snow's History Hit podcast is the exclusive place to follow in real time the search for the lost endurance shipwreck in Antarctica. This is part two of our mini-series that tells the incredible story of the endurance expedition, of the often overlooked legends, explorer Tom Crean and Captain Frank Worsley, who navigated the Southern Ocean using sun and stars. And of course, their heroic leader, the man they called the boss, who vowed to bring back every man alive whatever it took. I'm Dan Snow, and this is Endurance 22. The Endurance was well and truly stuck in the pack ice. Pack ice is any area of sea ice that isn't attached to land. It floats on the surface of the water and is made up of smaller pieces that are frozen together. It's almost impossible to sail through Antarctic waters without encountering enormous areas of pack ice that block a ship's path. The ice was packed heavily and firmly all round the Endurance in every direction as far as the eye could reach from the masthead. There was nothing to be done till the conditions changed and we waited through the day and the succeeding days with increasing anxiety. Initially, the crew attempted to manually move the ship, cutting at 18-foot thick ice with immense saws. For two days, they worked tirelessly and without rest, scraping ice from around the hull. Eventually, with their hands, they managed to push the ship backwards, Shackleton standing alone on the deck. Ultimately, it was in vain. The ship travelled 400 metres and would go no further. By the end of February 1915, Shackleton gave up trying to free her. The days that followed were uneventful. Moderate breezes from the east and southwest had no apparent effect upon the ice, and the ship remained firmly held. On the 27th, the tenth day of inactivity, I decided to let the fires out. We had been burning half a tonne of coal a day to keep steam in the boilers, and as the bunkers now contained only 67 tonnes, representing 33 days steaming, we could not afford to continue this expenditure of fuel. Land still showed to the east and south when the horizon was clear. Resigned to the will of the ice, the plan would be to sit tight until it melted and endurance would be freed. But sitting tight didn't necessarily mean sitting still. The ice flows were moving, gradually. And on the 22nd of February, endurance reached her most southerly point before she was moved north by the ice at a rate of roughly a mile a day. With Antarctic winter fast approaching, Shackleton began to worry. My chief anxiety is the drift. Where will the vagrant winds and currents carry the ship during the long winter months that are ahead of us? We will go west, no doubt, but how far? While the situation was certainly grim, spirits among the men remained high. The crew had faith in their leader, whom they affectionately referred to as the boss. 
In front of his crew, Shackleton was steadfast and confident. Shackleton, though, rarely slept. He ensured there was routine and discipline for the men to avoid low morale. To stop cliques developing, he made sure everyone felt special. He chatted to them as opposed to barking orders. There were no favourites. He tried to ensure that there was little difference between the officers and the men. When winter clothes were handed out, they always went to the crew first, then to their superiors. Everyone, irrespective of rank, had to scrub the floors. Inevitably, groups did form and tensions arose. The scientists and the sailors didn't get on particularly well. One of the crew, Thomas Orr Lees, proved particularly unpopular with the rest of the crew. They found him surly, condescending and lazy. Shackleton referred to him privately as the old lady. Nevertheless, it turned out that Thomas would be an efficient storekeeper with a keen interest in physical fitness. He took a bicycle on the expedition and when endurance was trapped, he frequently took cycling trips on the ice. Such activities were crucial for maintaining morale. On February the 24th, we ceased to observe ship routine and the endurance became a winter station. All hands were on duty during the day and slept at night, except a watchman who looked after the dogs and watched for any sign of movement in the ice. We cleared a space of 10 foot by 20 foot round the rudder and propeller, soaring through ice two feet thick and lifting the blocks with a pair of tongs made by the carpenter. Crean used the blocks to make an ice house for the dog Sally, which had added a little litter of pups to the strength of the expedition. Seals appeared occasionally, and we killed all that came within our reach. They represented fuel as well as food for men and dogs. Orders were given for the afterhold to be cleared and the stores checked so that we might know exactly how we stood for a siege by an Antarctic winter. The dogs went off the ship on the following day. Their kennels were placed on the floe along the length of a wire rope to which the leashes were fastened. The dogs seemed heartily glad to leave the ship and yelped loudly and joyously as they were moved to their new quarters. We had begun the training of teams and already there was a keen rivalry between the drivers. The men took pleasure in finding ways to occupy themselves until they'd be able to continue the mission. The flat flows and frozen leads in the neighbourhood of the ship made excellent training grounds. Hockey and football on the flow were our chief recreations and all hands joined in many a strenuous game. Worsley took a party to the flow on the 26th and started building a line of igloos and dogloos round the ship. These little buildings were constructed Eskimo fashion of big blocks of ice with thin sheets for the roofs. Boards or frozen seal skins were placed over all, snow was piled on top and pressed into joints, and then water was thrown over the structures to make everything firm. The ice was packed down flat inside and covered with snow for the dogs, which preferred, however, to sleep outside, except when the weather was extraordinarily severe. They took to hunting Antarctic game. The Plat du Jour offered crab-eater seal steak. We were accumulating gradually a stock of seal meat during these days of waiting. Fresh meat for the dogs was needed, and seal steaks and liver made a very welcome change from the ship's rations aboard the Endurance. Four crab-eaters and three weddles, over a tonne of meat for dog and man, fell to our guns on February the 2nd, and all hands were occupied most of the day getting the carcasses back to the ship over the rough ice. The men began to call their living quarters on Endurance the Ritz. Many had brought musical instruments from England, banjos, accordions, mandolins and the like. There was even a piano on board around which they gathered for costume and music reviews. Supposedly, Shackleton took the award for worst singer. We said goodbye to the sun on May the 1st and entered the period of twilight that would be followed by the darkness of midwinter. 
The sun, by the aid of refraction, just cleared the horizon at noon and set shortly before 2pm. A fine aurora in the evening was dimmed by the full moon, which had risen on April the 27th, and would not set again until May the 6th. The disappearance of the sun is apt to be a depressing event in the polar regions, where the long months of darkness involve mental as well as physical strain. But the Endurance's company refused to abandon their customary cheerfulness, and a concert in the evening made the Ritz a scene of noisy merriment in strange contrast with the cold, silent world that lay outside. The real enemy during all this time was the tedium. They cut their hair short and took ridiculous photographs together. Shackleton turned his cabin into a library. For the hundred years that have passed since Shackleton's death, researchers have wondered what Shackleton read while passing the time on endurance. Then in 2016, thanks to innovations in digital technology, a picture taken by Frank Hurley, the expedition photographer, was remastered to reveal in detail the titles sitting on Shackleton's cabin shelves. His library housed the poetry of Shelley, the expeditions of Amundsen and Nares. He read Dostoevsky, the brothers Karamazov, and the best-selling World's End by Amelie Rives. Given the limited space on board, there were also more unusual choices, including the concise Oxford Dictionary and the Manual of English Grammar and Composition. The days turned into weeks. March came and went. April arrived, edging closer to Antarctic winter. During the night of the 3rd, we heard the ice grinding to the eastward, and in the morning, we saw that young ice was rafted 8 to 10 feet high in places. This was the first murmur of the danger that was to reach menacing proportions in later months. Regular rumblings began to occur in the ice. Shackleton ordered watches on the ship as the assault mounted. He'd run up to the deck to see what was happening. Like tectonic plates, he saw ice sheets lifting up and buckling in the air. Worse still, endurance was drifting closer to the Antarctic Peninsula, where ice and land crash into each other. On the 13th of July, 1915, a strong southerly gale blew. The ship was pressed on from all sides. After the wind died down, Captain Frank Worsley remembered. He took his trusted deputies into his cabin and said, the ship can't live like this, skipper. You better make up your mind. It's only a matter of time. What the ice gets, the ice keeps. Essential supplies were hurriedly piled on the deck in case a sudden escape was required. The men took bets on when the ship would be freed. Shackleton blithely predicted October. He wasn't far off. By mid-October, in a losing battle with the ice, endurance was almost on her side. She'd been trapped for nine unremitting months. On the 18th, a wave of pressure caused the ship to twist, bend and lean dangerously. All hands worked ceaselessly throughout the night to repair the damage. The crew desperately tried to contain leaks with blankets. It was the beginning of the end. On the 24th of October, someone was playing The Wearing of the Green on the gramophone when they felt a rumble akin to the foreshocks of an earthquake. Listening below... I could hear the creaking and groaning of her timbers, the pistol-like cracks that told of the starting of a plank, and the faint, indefinable whispers of our ship's distress. 
Overhead, the sun shone serenely. Occasional fleecy clouds drifted before the southerly breeze, and the light glinted and sparkled on the million facets of the new pressure ridges. The day passed slowly. At 7pm, very heavy pressure developed, with twisting strains that racked the ship fore and aft. The butts of planking were opened four and five inches on the starboard side, and at the same time, we could see from the bridge that the ship was bending like a bow under titanic pressure. Almost like a living creature, she resisted the forces that would crush her, but it was a one-sided battle. Millions of tonnes of ice pressed inexorably upon the little ship that had dared the challenge of the Antarctic. In the days after, supplies were offloaded. Then came a fateful day, Wednesday, October the 27th. The position was latitude 69 degrees, 5 minutes south, longitude 51 degrees, 30 minutes west. The temperature was minus 8.5 degrees Fahrenheit. A gentle southerly breeze was blowing and the sun shone in a clear sky. At 5pm on the 27th of October, Shackleton was forced to admit defeat against the immense forces of nature. He gave the order to abandon ship. He wrote in his diary, It is hard to write what I feel. To a sailor, his ship is more than a floating home, and in the endurance, I had centred ambitions, hopes and desires. Now, straining and groaning, her timbers cracking and her wounds gaping, she is slowly giving up her sentient life at the very outset of her career. She is crushed and abandoned after drifting more than 570 miles in a northwesterly direction during the 281 days since she became locked in the ice. You're listening to Endurance 22 and the extraordinary story of the Endurance Expedition. We'll be back in just a moment. Have you ever thought about sex in ancient Rome? Perhaps you've pondered over the origins of civilization, or maybe you've had restless nights contemplating where Alexander the Great's lost tomb might be. I know I have. If so, we've got the perfect remedy. It's the Ancients on History hit, the Ancient History podcast. We've got interviews with leading experts on all of the above and so much more. So why not give the podcast a listen? Subscribe to the Ancients on History hit wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, I'm looking for answers to the big questions about every aspect of life in the early modern period. Like, how did the memory of Anne Boleyn continue to influence the court of her daughter, Elizabeth I? How were fairies brought to life on the Elizabethan stage? And how did the arrival of male-only doctors threaten the lives of women? In other words, not just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors twice a week, every week. Subscribe now and follow me on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. 
And also remember, when you're using messaging apps, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high-quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes, and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage. Add unlimited photos and videos and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code Dan Snow at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. With enough supplies off the ship, Shackleton and his men set up a camp on the ice. They erected tents and distributed sleeping bags made of wool and reindeer skins. They tried to sleep, the gnarled wreck of the endurance being slowly devoured beside them. For myself, I could not sleep. The destruction and abandonment of the ship was no sudden shock. The disaster had been looming ahead for many months, and I had studied my plans for all contingencies a hundred times. But the thoughts that came to me as I walked up and down in the darkness were not particularly cheerful. The task now was to secure the safety of the party, and to that I must bend my energies and mental power and apply every bit of knowledge that experience of the Antarctic had given me. The task was likely to be long and strenuous, and an ordered mind and a clear programme were essential if we were to come through without loss of life. A man must shape himself to a new mark directly the old one goes to ground. Shackleton was acutely aware that he and his men were 1,200 miles from the nearest civilization, and without a means of communication, he'd given up hope for help from the outside world. He deduced they were about 350 miles from Paulette Island, the nearest possible place to find food or shelter. He knew a hut had been built there by a Swedish expedition in 1902, with stores left by an Argentine relief ship. He knew about this because he'd been the one to purchase them on behalf of the Argentine government for the expedition's relief mission but it soon became clear that it was impossible to take enough food to sustain them for the entire journey from the wreck of the Endurance to Paulette Island. They would attempt the journey anyway. The men were ordered to leave behind anything they didn't absolutely need, and a ceremony of sorts was given to the things they would abandon. At 3pm after lunch, we got underway, leaving dump camp a mass of debris. The order was that personal gear must not exceed two pounds per man, and this meant that nothing but bare necessaries was to be taken on the march. We could not afford to cumber ourselves with unnecessary weight. Holes had been dug in the snow for the reception of private letters and little personal trifles. The lares and panates of the members of the expedition, and into the privacy of these white graves, were consigned much of sentimental value and not a little of intrinsic worth. I rather grudged the £2 allowance per man, owing to my keen anxiety to keep weights at a minimum, but some personal belongings could fairly be regarded as indispensable. The journey might be a long one, and there was a possibility of a winter in improvised quarters on an inhospitable coast at the other end. A man under such conditions needs something to occupy his thoughts, some tangible memento of his home and people beyond the seas. So sovereigns were thrown away and photographs were kept. Some of the animals that over a very trying nine months had become more like pets, family even to the men, also had to be left behind. This afternoon, Sally's three youngest pups, Sue's Sirius and Mrs Chippy, the carpenter's cat, have to be shot. We could not undertake the maintenance of weaklings under the new conditions. Macklin, Crean and the carpenter seemed to feel the loss of their friends rather badly. One of the most iconic photographs from the Endurance Expedition 
is a picture of the rugged and stern-looking second officer Tom Crean holding four giant fluffy puppies in his arms. They'd been born on endurance in January 1915, and Crean had taken great interest in caring for the dogs. Thomas Ord Lees remembers. Opposite the pigs are five puppies and their mother, the interesting event having taken place three days ago, but so far Tom Crean, who has cared for her like a hospital orderly, is the only one who has seen the little creatures, though we all hear their shrill little squeaks. They will soon be fun. The shooting of the dogs was just the first in a long series of gruelling tests that would harden the men. With the supplies packed, they began their march to the depot on Paulette Island, 350 miles away, pulling their lifeboats with them. But quickly, the terrain proved impassable, even with the remaining dogs. Every way they turned, ice blocked their path. A few days of fruitless attempts, and Shackleton eventually called the journey off knowing the likelihood of making it was negligible. They were stuck again, this time with no shelter from the roaring winds and freezing temperatures, save for a few canvas tents. With no other option, they had no choice but to pitch a camp. A party was sent back to dump camp near the ship to collect as much clothing, tobacco, etc. as they could find. The heavy snow which had fallen in the last few days, combined with the thawing and consequent sinking of the surface, resulted in the total disappearance of a good many of the things left behind at this dump. The remainder of the men made themselves as comfortable as possible under the circumstances at Ocean Camp. This floating lump of ice, about a mile square at first but later splitting into smaller and smaller fragments, was to be our home for nearly two months. During these two months, we made frequent visits to the vicinity of the ship and retrieved much valuable clothing and food and some few articles of personal value which, in our light-hearted optimism, we had thought to leave miles behind us on our dash across the moving ice to safety. For six months, from October 1915 onwards, they camped on unpredictable and hazardous ice flows, drifting helplessly. As had been true on the ship, morale was initially high. The men hung their washing on makeshift lines and played with the dogs on the ice. They believed that as soon as the ice melted, they would set sail in their three lifeboats. They pinned their hopes on it. But over time, their supplies became depleted and food became an obsession. Another man searched for over an hour in the snow where he had dropped a piece of cheese some days before in the hopes of finding a few crumbs. He was rewarded by coming across a piece as big as his thumbnail and considered it well worth the trouble. By this time, blubber was a regular article of our diet, either raw, boiled or fried. It's remarkable how our appetites have changed in this respect. Until quite recently, almost the thought of it was nauseating. Now, however, we positively demand it. The thick black oil which is rendered down from it, rather like train oil in appearance and cod liver oil in taste, we drink with avidity. It was a desperate situation. Seals and penguins now seemed to studiously avoid us, and on taking stock of our provisions on March the 21st, I found that we had only sufficient meat to last us for ten days and the blubber would not last that time even, so one biscuit had to be our midday meal. On April the 2nd, 1916, Shackleton ordered the men to shoot the remaining dogs. The canines progressed from workers to beloved companions, and now to food. In his diary, Shackleton's description is starkly pragmatic. The last two teams of dogs were shot today, April the 2nd, the carcasses being dressed for food. We had some of the dog meat cooked, and it was not at all bad. Just like beef, but of course, very tough. The men were facing the prospect of another Antarctic winter on the ice, with no shelter and no food. 
They'd been marooned for 14 months. It was time to make an escape. Shackleton made the call that the men would board their small open lifeboats and sail to Elephant Island, seven days sailing. He outlined his rationale for this destination. It seems vital that we shall land on Clarence Island or its neighbour, Elephant Island. The latter island has attraction for us, although as far as I know, nobody has ever landed there. Its name suggests the presence of the plump and succulent sea elephant. We have an increasing desire, in any case, to get firm ground under our feet. The flow has been a good friend to us, but it is reaching the end of its journey, and it is liable at any time now to break up and fling us into the unplumbed sea. But to do so, they'd have to cross part of the Southern Ocean, one of the most treacherous in the world, with raging 80-mile-an-hour winds that whip up 50-foot swells. Today, it's dangerous crossing in a steel-hulled ice-breaking ship, so to make the attempt in a wooden rowing boat was certifiably insane, or just desperate. But there was a saying about Ernest Shackleton from Raymond Priestley, a geologist who'd accompanied him on the Nimrod expedition. When disaster strikes and all hope is gone, get down on your knees and pray for Shackleton. On the 9th of April, the men launched the three lifeboats into open water. Captain Frank Worsley took command of the Dudley Docker. Tom Crean and navigator Hubert Hudson were in charge of the Stankham Wills and Ernest Shackleton captained the James Caird. The crew made landfall on Elephant Island on the 15th of April 1916, after seven days of sailing with little food and water. Shackleton and others believed that some of them wouldn't have survived another 24 hours at sea. Their mouths were swollen from dehydration. They had frostbite. They hadn't touched dry land for 497 days. At first, it seemed like a miracle. But quickly, the crew began to realise that there was little for them on the island. Steep cliffs and hardly any shelter from the wind. There were a few animals to hunt, but no sign of any passing ships. The men turned to their leader for what to do next. You're listening to Endurance 22 and the extraordinary story of the Endurance Expedition. Make sure you subscribe to Dan Snow's History Hit podcast to get the final chapter of this epic tale of survival. It drops tomorrow. And don't forget to go to History Hit TV, the world's best history channel. We have all these podcasts, plus hundreds of hours of documentaries. Simply follow the link in the description to this podcast and get two weeks absolutely free. I'm Dan Snow, and this episode was produced by Mariana Desforges, and Shackleton's Diary was read by Dan Aspel. Goodbye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. 
Sign up with code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us, and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.